And turn your Bibles, please, once again to Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verse 1. Just saying, in this, this chapter is not one uh, we like to look at. Two things, really. The power of sin, the depth of the depravity that people are capable of, and the sobering reality of God's judgment. Uh, They're both front and center here. Quite frankly, I'd rather preach about something else, anything else. Uh, God's mercy, His grace, His love, compassion, faithfulness, God's majesty, His glory, uh, the cross, the resurrection, the incarnation, justification, sanctification, heaven, eternity. Yet I've been preaching now for oh, about 45 years. Uh, and I'll just say I, I'm committed uh, to declaring the whole counsel of God. And, and here the Bible faithfully describes for us the human condition. Uh, it challenges to people as they really are. Uh, and uh, this chapter demonstrates that. Uh, but let me just say, never look at any passage without all the other things that, that I've, I just mentioned, especially keeping God's grace and God's mercy and His love in view. Uh, my prayer is would God would use this to, uh, uh, through this, be merciful to us. Uh, he would keep guard our minds, keep our, our minds pure. Uh, and indeed, we're all sinners. We stand before holy God. Uh, God would have mercy on us. God have mercy on me, the chief of sinners. So this is the word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in, at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with the face of the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called on Lot, where the men who came to you tonight, bring them out so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after them, and said, I beg you, my brothers, not so wickedly, go to have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. I want to do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. They said, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn, he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So the men, they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city? And Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Let's pray. Father, we're so... Oh, join me with this. The grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we have your word. Father, it's sobering. Uh, And uh, we pray for your spirit's help to grasp what you would teach us here. Father, how to apply it to the way we think, the way we live, the way we serve you. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, it's rise and shine time, Sodom and Gomorrah. Looks like another beautiful day here on the plain in the Jordan River Valley. And your WJRV traffic update tells us that every six minutes, the traffic here is flowing smoothly. All the major arteries in the area. It is a city. It is a region oblivious to their sin and to the coming judgment and to the mercy of God. To check it out, let's go to the text. First, we want to see the mercy of God. Verse 1, then verse 12. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Then verse 12, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. All right, this is God's answer to Abraham's prayer. He's coming to find out how many righteous people there are in Sodom. We know that ten are needed, and so we start with Lot, and then we have his wife, that's two. The two daughters, we think four. The two son-in-laws, that makes six. You just need, my math is good here, four more. That's all. But here's the thing. God already knows how many righteous people there are in Sodom. And the answer is one. Lot. That's it. His daughters are moral as the story starts, but it does turn out they're not so righteous. And then we saw last week the only two people he even tried to recruit were his two sons-in-law, future sons-in-law. And, and they laughed. Lot has not impacted anybody else with the gospel. However he thought about uh, his mission to Sodom, it's been a failure. Yet God in his mercy sends these angels to find out. God in his mercy sends the angels, so to speak, because God is merciful and he's gracious and he's patient and he's kind to Abraham. So the angels announce judgment is coming because of rebellion against God. And that's a merciful announcement. Then there's another thing that points to God's mercy. And that is that we often, uh, we, when we see or hear a remnant of God's image in people who read this story. One thing we observe that if anybody reads it honestly... Now, everyone who does so agrees the sodomite behavior here is, is, is abusive and it's wrong. Nobody ever tries to argue that this combination of sexual debauchery and sexual violence is a good thing. Why is that? The answer is that even though the image of God in us is marred by sin, there are still some remnants of that God-likeness. They give us an awareness that what's going on here is wrong. God's common grace that it rains on the just and the unjust. Uh, though distorted, it gives us at least some sense of right and wrong. It should encourage us that people condemn what we read here. In a world that tells people they can be whatever they want to be, and they can do whatever they want to do, uh, it's encouraging that some do draw limits, they draw a line in the sand. That is the hope that gives us, because of common grace, 
that maybe we can work together some with the culture to, to determine what's right and wrong. That indeed we can find common ground. But quite frankly, it seems that common ground is diminishing. This passage also shows us then the power of sin. Now it's obvious, it's plain. Uh, but there's a big lie in our Isaiah 5.20 world that calls evil good and good evil. That lie is the plain distortion of God's word. Derek Sherwin Bailey's 1955 book claimed that Sodom's sin was a lack of hospitality. Now I'll grant you this is not good hospitality, friends. Uh, but he claims all the Sodomites wanted to really do was check out the travel papers. You know, do they have the right documents? That's all they were there for. And you will still hear that argument made today. Let me be clear. This is not just a lack of hospitality. If that's what it was, the punishment actually seems a little much. All right? Uh, now, this is proclaiming truth in love. What Bailey and others often refer to is the verse we read last week, Ezekiel 16.49. But they do so, and they do not read Ezekiel 50. Hear them both together again. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, is explicitly clear about what this abomination is. Jude 7 says very plainly, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. That's the power of sin. But just stop. We've been singing about it. Let's be equally clear now about the power of the gospel. Paul writing in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, murder is a devastating sin. Adultery is a devastating sin. And so is this. And the good news is that the gospel reaches out to all sinners and proclaims hope to all, no matter what their sin is. Yes, this is an unspeakable sin. Sin of depravity. The men of Sodom wearing themselves out groping for the door of Lot's house. This offer by Lot, so strange to us, so disturbing to our ears. It shows us how significant hospitality was, but it's coupled with a, a simply low view of women. Sin clearly warps all sense of perspective. We see how degraded it can be. And this does call for thinking on our part. To be sure, we read the Bible narratives and, and they don't always tell us uh, whether something that happened was right or wrong. They just tell us what happened. The task we have is to go to what we call the didactic or the teaching parts of Scripture and make an application. 
So what went wrong here? One is the people of Sodom have taken God out of the equation. They're living examples of the opening verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In order to rebel against God, people look for ways to defy God. When we go to Genesis 1, we read quite clearly. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The initial task is given in the next verse. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A basic knowledge of biology tells you how that's possible. Genesis 2, we see these two people become one flesh in marriage. Paul elaborates on that in Ephesians 5, that the reason for this is we better understand our relationship with God. One male, one female, one marriage. The Ten Commandments tells us of the sacredness of that relationship. They forbid all sexual relations outside the husband-wife relationship in marriage. The big question people are asking today, well, why is sexual immorality such a big thing before God? I want you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4 to see this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. Paul's writing, and he says to them, verse 3, For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord's an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God's not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Sexual immorality, any sexual immorality, uh, outside of the husband-wife relationship in marriage, is sinful. Whether it's premarital sex, Adultery, homosexuality. And Paul tells us why here. First, it takes love out of the equation. What does it put in its place? It puts in lust. It makes a sexual relationship a mere physical act. It's what the communists in the Soviet Union always tried to say. It was just like drinking a glass of water. No wonder the Soviet Union fell. All right, second, it takes self-control out of the equation. It replaces it to just yielding to our sinful passions. And third, when we practice sexual immorality of any kind, we are using or abusing the other person for our own benefit. We wrong our brother or our sister. Sexual immorality of any type is self-centered. It lacks self-discipline and real love. Remember, Jesus, keeping his commandments, said keeping his commandments is a mark that we love him. And friends, all of God's word gives us Jesus' commandments. And here's the reality. Human sexuality 
flourishes within God's guidelines, God's truth. That's the safe place in the sexual relationship, one of God's good gifts to humanity. Outside of marriage, it's always harmful and ultimately disappointing and destructive. Always. Even when we as humans try to pretend or declare otherwise. And to say that goes against the flow of the culture today, but it's the truth. It is how God designed things to be. It's what the Bible says. Yes, the culture disagrees with us. Disagrees with the Bible on this. The culture is at war with the truth of God. And yes, what the Bible teaches is unpopular. But I tell you, friends, I'll take my stand on God's word. I can do no other. What Paul is telling us is that sanctification is the opposite of sexual immorality. It's learning to love like God loves, learning to love God, learning to love people according to God's guidelines. And the reality is the world is running from God and from his love. The reality is that we're all rebels against the holy God. Every single human being uh, is diagnosed with the very same problem. And the problem is sin. Yet God pursues us with love. We see just how deep God's love is at the cross. How vast and beyond all human measure. The Bible makes clear throughout that redeeming love is the Bible's theme. God's love towards sinners is the redeeming love of Christ. God made the provision for us to redeem by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And all who are believers in Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins, have our sins forgiven. And we're all made new creatures in Christ. So how do we apply this story? What should we emphasize? First, obviously the mercy of God to Lot. He rescued Lot from certain doom and destruction. God cares for his people. Second, we've got to heed what Jude says about this passage. Turn over to Jude. We read a good bit of it earlier. What he says is appropriate for us. Uh, the last part of verse 4. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and now are only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty clear. People pervert grace into sensuality. They use grace to choose sin. And they deny the lordship of Christ. Christ claimed that he rules the world. That's back to Psalm 2. Let's throw off Christ's rule. Let's do away with the truth of God. Let's do things the way we want to do them. The way that seems right to us. The way that seems loving to us. You see, they're calling God's guidance for human love evil. And their guidance, their choice is good. So why do they do this? Verse 17. But just remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people, Devoid of the Spirit. 
We certainly see the scoffers who follow their own passions, who drive a wedge between the culture and the church. So what do we do? Well, Jude has the answer. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Strengthen our faith. Pray. And keep in the love of God. In other words, love God's way. We're dependent on God's mercy to live like that. It requires humility. But he says we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us. Loving God's way is a call to sexual purity. It is a call to sexual morality. So hear me, young people, young adults. If you've already fallen into sexual sin of any kind, now one thing to tell you is that God is a gracious God. God forgives you. All you have to do is be sincerely sorry and ask His forgiveness. Not only will He forgive you, but He'll give you grace to walk again in newness of life. Remember, He casts our sins into the depth of the sea. And as you walk in that newness of life, or if you've not yet fallen into sexual sin, stay strong in the Word, pray, walk wisely. And He will give you grace to stand against the culture's mandate for sin. The culture's constant temptation to sin. God is on our side in the battle against sexual temptation. Uh, God's forgiving grace. God's sanctifying grace. Your parents are on your side. The church is on your side. Look to your parents for encouragement. Look to to adults in the church for encouragement. Friends, sexual temptation is nothing new. We can see in Genesis 19 a culture trying to overthrow God and declare its own cultural norms. That's not new. That's what they were doing in Sodom. They tried it in first century Rome. Fourteen of the fifteen Roman Caesars were involved in some way in the practice of homosexuality. But in time, the Bible won out. The Roman Empire is no more, I would point out to you. God's truth defeated the sexual promiscuity of the day that was Greece and that was Rome. And friends, God's truth will triumph here. And finally, as God is merciful to us in forgiving, whatever that sin is, God calls us to walk in truth and God calls us to reach out to people. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by the flesh. Friends, we're not called to be arrogant. We're called to practice mercy with people who disagree with us. We're to love them well. We're to welcome them to the church. Our goal is to love people into the kingdom. To love them to the point that no matter what they are, as Paul describes the Corinthians, to love them with God's truth and hope so that they embrace the church, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. Yes, that does mean telling them the truth about sin. We cannot sugarcoat the truth. 
We have an amazing, loving, forgiving God to tell them about. And it starts with acknowledging that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners in need of grace and need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. The reality that we've received grace already is not to make us arrogant and proud, but, but humble and grateful uh, to realize that there, but for the grace of God, go I. And what Jude describes here calls for courage on the part of the church. It calls for loving people again enough to tell them the truth about sin, about all sin, and about the gospel. The gospel that saves, the gospel that restores, the gospel that forgives. The gospel has the power to deal with any and every sin in our lives. Here's how Peter Heck puts our task. We live in a nation so self-absorbed that it believes it can rewrite the scientific realities of biological and physiological identity simply by willing it. How long could such a confused people be expected to respect or about our right to descend against their error? About as long as a sandbag resists a tsunami. So what do we do? We share God's truth. We share God's love. You see, the, the need is for a growing number of hearts surrendered to God's moral authority to stand against uh, what's going on. What changes hearts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the laws of the legislature. It's not the decisions of the Supreme Court. That's why we've got to live it. So we've got to proclaim it. So how do we have the courage to live this way? Which very likely means we're hated by the world. We'll focus on these final verses from Jude where we began today. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the glory of his the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Jesus will keep us from stumbling. If we do stumble, he will pick us up. He will forgive us. He will restore us. And one day, he will present us faultless, faultless before the very throne of God. That's God's promise. Let's keep Him as our focus. Keep our worship of Him as our focus. When we're truly passionate about God and His glory, then, friends, we will be compassionate for His world, for the hurting people, for the confused people trying to live by their own truth. So what about us? Given these incredible promises from God we just read, our lives should display Christ-like humility and our lives must proclaim the gospel. Friends, we know the truth. We know that God's made us male and female. We know the truth about how we are to love others. We know the truth about sexual immorality. We know that God tells us to flee from it and flee to Him. Again, God does not call us to be arrogant with the truth, but loving with the truth. God's shown us grace, and we must be gracious. 
God has shown us mercy and we want others to know that same mercy. We should pray for mercy for those who are deceived and for those who are deceiving others. Let me say, if you're here today, you do not yet know that mercy. You don't know His love and you want to know more about it, please see one of us after the service. As we close, I want to call your attention to two sections in that last hymn. The first is in verse 2. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. That's us. We're vile sinners whose sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. Again, that's the hope that we offer to everyone, no matter what their sin is. Then note the last stanza. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till the ransomed, all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's our hope. That's why we pursue the Great Commission. That's the promise we can make to anybody and to everybody. The blood of Jesus will never lose its power. And all of God's people will one day come to faith. And it brings us full circle this morning. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words, they're difficult words, they're things we don't enjoy talking about so much. But Father, this is your truth. So Father, give us the courage as your church to stand for truth. Father, not to try to soften it. Uh, Father, not to try to tiptoe around it. But Father, say, this is what the Bible says, Lord, not with arrogance, but Father, with love. Father, anybody here that's struggling with sexual temptation, they here to fall, and Father, show them the, the gospel, Father, today. Show them the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Draw them to the cross, we pray. Father, anybody here without Christ, Lord, draw them to the cross, we pray. We're grateful, Father, that there's a fountain that's been filled with blood that comes from the veins of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that there we find forgiveness and we find cleansing. Give us strength to walk by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.